it's always worth remembering that Paul's letters weren't written in a neutral vacuum, but were addressed to particular people in a particular cultural context. And consequently, this context becomes vital to our ability to understand what Paul is actually communicating to each of the communities he corresponds with. A text like 1 Timothy 2.15, where on a supposed plain reading of the text, Paul tells women that they receive salvation by means of bearing children, is a clear example of this need for contextual understanding. According to my guest today, Dr. Sandra Glan, it's the cult of Artemis and its important to Ephesus that undergirds much of Paul's instruction here, and this provides the basis for her latest book, Nobody's Mother. Welcome to Theodisc. I'm your host, Kenny Innes, and Theodisc aims to provide accessible theological conversations to encourage your faith and understanding. This, by the way, is episode 27, which means there are 26 previous episodes for you to catch up on. Please subscribe to the podcast and receive all future episodes delivered to your device. Dr. Sandra Glan is Professor of Media Arts and Worship at Dallas Theological Seminary. She's a journalist and the author, co-author or editor of more than 20 books, including Nobody's Mother, which is the subject of our conversation in this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Well, it is with real delight and excitement that I get to welcome Sandra Glan to the podcast today. Thank you, Sandra, for being part of Theodis this week. Totally my pleasure. Love it. Now, where are you speaking from as we're, we're talking here over Zoom? Dallas, Texas. This, yeah. It's morning for me, not for you, but for me, it's it's morning in Dallas, Texas on a windy day that gives us hope that fall actually might plan to make an appearance. We've had some doubts. <laughs> I was just saying to Sandra that outside my window is the frozen north of Scotland where it's <laughs> pitch black, so it couldn't be more different. Um, but today we're going to have a conversation around Sandra's book, which has um, just been published in the US called uh, Nobody's Mother. And um, Sandra's really in that book looking at the implications of the archaeological, cultural, historical, literary, biblical evidence for our understanding of Paul's letters to um, Christians in Ephesus and Crete. And particularly we'll dig into his letter, his first letter to Timothy and some some sections of that. But before we get into talking about the book, I want to just do what I normally do with all my first time guests on Theodisc, which is just spend a couple of minutes trying to get to know them a little bit better. This is the first time Sandra and I have been in conversation really. So Sandra, three questions for you. Um, really, the, this is about things that you return to. Okay. So we're about to look at your latest scholarly work, but I want to know what are the things that are constants in your life. So the three right. categories of that we're going to go through. The first is a book. Next is a food or a meal. And third is a location. So let's go for your, your book first that you return to. My book is Fleming Rutledge's uh, book on Advent. Every year I don't make it all the way through. It's so rich and dense in the best ways. So I just leave a bookmark uh, in it and put it on my shelf. And when Advent rolls around, I just pick up where I left off. She's got hymns and poetry, deep theology, poetic words. The woman is a uh, a crafter of good words. So that's going to be on my list. Yeah. For those listening, if you haven't picked up anything by Fleming, then Ugh. have a go because it's just, she's an incredible writer. Yeah. The crucifixion, also brilliant. Yeah. 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 Great. What about a food or a meal that you return to? 
that is going to be berry pie. So my birthday is the day after Christmas, and my mother was wonderful about insisting that we did not mix Christmas and birthday. Right. But the problem is I really preferred pie to cake. <laughs> and so uh, she would make an extra pie for me when she made Christmas to make sure she had some Oregon berries. I'm a fourth-generation Oregonian transplanted in Texas, yep. uh, but those Oregon berries take me home. And any particular kind of berries, or is it just throw it all in? Oh, raspberry, boysenberry. Something in that family, blackberry. Nice. The darker berries, yeah. Excellent. Not a big, huge fan of blueberry. I like the berries that have lots of little bubbles on them. <laughs> Did you ever try the gooseberry? Mm, yeah, it's a little <laughs> tart for me. <laughs> I haven't had a gooseberry in years. Anyway, um, what about um, a place or a location that you return to? And that would be Grand Teton National Park. Uh, we went camping there when I was 13. My dad summited one of the mountains. And this is in the days before cell phones. So he flashed a mirror from the summit to let his kiddos know that daddy had made it to the top. And it was just so magical. It's beautiful. It's got the Snake River and these just gorgeous mountains. So took took our daughter snow uh, sledding, dog sledding there as soon yeah. as she was able to hold on for dear life. <laughs> wow, that sounds amazing. Well, thank you. We've got to know you a little bit. Sure. Berry pie is good and your birthday <laughs> is the day after Christmas. There you go. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, let's let's get into Nobody's Mother okay. a little bit here. So, obviously, you're focusing in on a particular section of First Timothy. Right. Um, and I just want to read that so we've just kind of got that for the context. We're not going to be able to get into every part of this, but I think it would be good for us to have this in our minds as we go through our conversation. Uh, so First Timothy 2 from verse 8, um, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I, I thought about that as I was reading your book. Like, we don't focus in on verse 8 very often, do Not we? so much. Yeah. yeah. We are the emotional ones, but we, right. but we digress. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Already we're digressing. Yeah. Um, verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I'm reading that from the NIV. And there's one more phrase. Go on in. This is a faithful saying that goes into the next chapter, but I would include that in chapter two. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so obviously this is a much poured over passage of scripture. Much. <laughs> yeah. And particularly in your book, you, you want us to help us better understand the context of this letter and why Paul might be writing it and some, some broader issues as well at the time. Right. Particularly the sentence at, at the end there, yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So on a plain reading... I'm doing my, <laughs> my friends inverted commas here Yeah, on a plain reading. Right. That's a source of concern for a lot of women, that verse. Well, it, it's concern for any of us who teaches about salvation, because if Paul is saying a woman gets to heaven or has eternal life by having babies, not only is that work salvation, but it uh, totally goes against his consistent teaching that salvation is by grace through faith. 
Uh, and it also doesn't really jibe well with the whole early church that was totally into virginity. So they clearly weren't understanding him as go make a nuclear family. Mm -hmm. uh, so it doesn't really match history. Um, lots. I mean, there are places in the world, I'm thinking of Romania in particular, where they, where they do interpret that a woman has to have lots of babies to have eternal life. But uh, that is not the majority reading. Yeah. But it's the, it is the plainest reading. Yeah. And this is a this is an issue because quite often there are other sections of that passage that we that people would teach this is absolutely sure, but we don't quite know what to do with verse fifteen. Yeah, that's right. Lots of teaching about women teaching, but we don't tend to keep going. Going, what is this whole argument about Adam and Eve and childbearing? Yeah, right. It's all one package. So you've obviously got quite a you've. You've zeroed in on this section here is really the, the the core of your book. What drew you to kind of um, looking at that? So the title of the book, Nobody's Mother, is a reference or corrective to thinking about Artemis of the Ephesians in antiquity in the New Testament. Artemis is behind a lot of the false teaching in Ephesus where Timothy is where, when Paul writes in the letter. We know this from one verse, you know, chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. So the obvious question is, okay, what were the false doctrines? And fortunately, uh, Luke has written a whole lot about that. A whole chapter, chapter 19 in Luke, shows us that the false doctrine in Ephesus is very steeped in magic with a correlation to Artemis worship to the point where you have all these male silver workers are, that are very upset that Paul is cutting into their business because the gospel is converting Gentiles, which suggests lots of Gentiles in Timothy's church. Right. And how would they have heard childbearing in the context of the massive goddess uh, who was who was known all over the empire? She's really second only to Zeus in how often she gets mentioned. And she, so that was solving for X for me was sort of what's the mystery? Who is Artemis then? If Artemis is a big part of what would have been on Paul's mind, it's sort of what got him run out of town early was this brouhaha of chanting great as Artemis, uh, the accusation that he's cutting into Artemis. Uh, and it, I find it very interesting that Artemis, at the time of the earliest Christians, her number one characteristic after virginity, or maybe even before virginity, is going to be being a midwife. Mm -hmm. She doesn't herself have children. She is into celibacy in a very uptight way, but she also has mercy on women in childbirth. And it is thought that her arrows could euthanize. So it's suspected that she could save either by delivering you safely or by euthanizing you quickly. Because imagine a world with no painkillers, no C-sections. You, Most everybody would have heard a woman screaming for days before her life finally ended. It's the number one cause of death for women at this time. And you're talking about because um, life expectancy was so low as well that just to maintain zero population uh, growth rate. You had to have five children yeah. to maintain zero population because the number one cause of death for men is war. So the the emperors have built in some incentives for women to have children because they are all about building empire. So actually women get a little more freedom in their lives if they uh, deliver the children, but they have to survive. The women have to survive and the kids have to survive. And that's a tall order. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, di we'll dig into kind of the the person of Artemis in just a second or the goddess of Artemis yeah. in just a second, some more details. But I know that there are people who would say, listen, this 
you're digging in, you're digging up stuff here, or you're coming up with things here that this really wasn't an issue till the 1960s and feminism came <laughs> along. And it feels like you're kind of hunting for ways that you can just redefine Paul's words. What, what would you say yeah. to people who, who say that? What I would say to that is Protestants in particular don't know our history. When we rightly read the New Testament talking about all believers are saints, we kicked out all anybody who's a saint. And we started calling St. Paul, Paul. Um, but we then, the bigger the bigger challenge for women's history, particularly is we lost all the biographies that were being told weekly. You know, if you go to Milan, Florence, Venice 1.0, all of them had churches named after women that most of us have never heard of that were in existence for 1,000 years or more. They were known to everyone in Christendom. Thecla and Reparata and you know, Fosca. These are not names that most of us know, but every Christian would have known. So if, if we think that the history of the church is there's been one view of women all the way through until Betty Friedan and second wave feminism in the United States, completely leaving out womanism and black history, by the way, then we just we don't know history. And it's OK that we don't know history, but we need to learn it and stop telling a wrong narrative because we're embarrassing ourselves. Yeah, yeah. A whole history of women leading and teaching in the church that has been buried. And I, I do find that interesting that particularly in maybe we could, and I, I own this as, an, as a someone who's in an evangelical charismatic space. I always say to people, you know, Christianity wasn't invented in 1970. That... <laughs> Yeah. Or in the US, yeah. which I will say, you know, you're not going to throw us under the bus, but I will uh, for, as a corrective. Love my people, but we can be very self-focused in our country and yeah, yeah forget that it all started in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah. So there's been several things over the years that um, have caused um, women to be um, focused on less. And certainly in our time, it's a dearth of historical knowledge that we just don't know um, the history behind all of that. So and now that more women are in the academy, we're going back and saying, hey, we have told the story of history through political power. So if you, the women that we do know of are named Cleopatra or, you know, the emperor's mother, Helen. But we don't know the women that the church would have called saints, many of whom were martyred and many whom in the earliest centuries were virgins or widows, which the word widow earlier really meant a, a, a without a man woman not necessarily mm. a woman who had uh actually had a husband yeah yeah so in some senses um women being more liberated to go into the marketplace and into academia has had an effect but the effect is not our kind of a redefinition it's a greater uh, knowledge and understanding of our history certainly in some pockets you know i a lot of my work i had no idea what was going to lead i I was sort of a shiny, happy people, Bill Gothard camp. And it was really only infertility and pregnancy loss that made me have a complete identity crisis. Mm. I wanted to use my gifts for the church. I didn't have to be behind a pulpit. I was actually really happy to be at home with kids, but the Lord kept slamming that door. And I had to go back and have a spiritual crisis to relook at, okay, where did I pick up subculture? Where did I pick up Southern culture? Where did I pick up American culture? You know, you do a little uh, travel to Kenya and talk to women in huts and realize the whole idea of women in the house, men outside is, is very middle-class uh, culture uh, in the developed world.
Okay, so let's pivot here and get into Artemis. So we've kind of breached that a little bit already. Can you kind of sketch out for us the the broader importance of Artemis um, and Ephesus itself at the time that oh, Paul was writing? Yeah. You know, I, when I came to look at Ephesus in, in my dissertation work, I was really surprised at how uh, those of us who love the biblical text have un underemphasized it in comparison to Rome. When you consider that the book of Ephesians is written to Ephesus, the Corinthian, the letters to Corinthians, probably Paul is in Ephesus when writing them. First, second, third John, he is probably on the outskirts of Ephesus. You have Ephesus addressed in the seven churches of Revelation. You have, you know, a big section of Acts devoted to what's happening in Ephesus. Uh, so it is the capital of the province of Asia at the time. And uh, for American, I would make the analogy to even though our capital is Washington, D.C., New York and its harbor and its business and its international trade is much closer to the kind of uh, influence that Ephesus had relative to Rome. Rome was the capital. It was dirty and stinky, but Ephesus was rich and glorious and and on the, the harbor, they had m multiple harbors. So you could, I think that's probably why Paul chose to be there. Mm. He could ship out to Egypt if he wanted to, you know, to Spain, it, but also Thessal Thessalonica and Philippi and um, Galatia. I mean, he had easy access, easy the easiest access in relative terms says a woman who can fly and drive in a car and a train, but you know what I mean? <laughs> he could, he could walk or ship out more easily from Ephesus. Yeah. And so Ephesus, this which seems to be this powerhouse of a city, um, yeah. has this focus on the person of Artemis. How important was she to their culture? Ephesus is, Artemis is to Ephesus as Jesus is to Bethlehem. Even today, I was in Bethlehem in the past year, and most of the trade relates to people coming to this little town of Bethlehem because it's the birthplace of the Savior. I was there on a you know, I'll put pilgrimage in air quotes because I'm an evangelical, but that's basically what it was. I wanted to be in the place approximately where the Annunciation, um, or not the Annunciation, the birth, uh, the birthplace of, of our Lord happened. And so people would make pilgrimages to the birthplace of Artemis. That was the traditional birthplace. And there's a temple there that's four times the size of the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens, which is when you consider there's not a crane to build, to lift the pillars, I don't know, I mean, it had to be massive human effort to get that built. And so her temple is one of the wonders of the seven world. At the time, it, it's now silted in, but at the time it was on the water and glistened. People could see it from miles away as they sailed into the harbor. Um, we, we have all kinds of documentation in the city itself, lots of inscriptions, calling her Lord, calling her Savior, calling her God, calling her first throne, uh, calling her manifest. Interestingly, a lot of those words showing up in First Timothy, yeah, ascribed to Jesus Christ, our Lord, God, Savior, manifest. Yeah. Now, anyone who's done some kind of digging into trying to understand what's going on, particularly in First Timothy two, um, with a concern about what's being said about women there, will have come across something about Artemis. But I mean, in my own looking at it. It was Artemis has been popularly understood as a fertility goddess. Right. Um, right. But your evidence that you present in the book, and really your book is this kind of big presentation of all of this evidence about who Artemis was, you, you kind of say otherwise. So 
for your writing, what has been the primary characteristics of Artemis that you've uncovered? So I knew from my secular historians that Artemis was not really considered much of a fertility goddess. Mm -hmm. uh, in Christendom, it's really rooted in a statement that Jerome made in the fourth century, referring to the Artemis of Ephesus as being polymaston, which is many-breasted. And if you just take a quick glance at the art at the Ephesian version of the goddess, she does look that way. Um, but a deeper dig shows that those are probably not breasts. They're probably related to Hittite magic. And everything, whether you look in the inscriptions describing her, whether you look in the papyri, whether you look in the coins, whether you look in the statues, over and over, the emphasis is Artemis is a virgin. She has actually uh, been quite volatile with anybody who even accidentally like comes on her bathing. She will take you out or she'll turn you into an animal like you are done um, because she's just she is really picky about that. Mm. Um, she basically, as the story goes in Homer, uh, she witnessed her mother. So she's you know, she's firstborn of twins. And then she witnesses her mother writhe for nine days, giving birth to her brother Apollo. And she goes to Daddy Zeus and wants none of that and says, I want you to make me immune to Aphrodite's arrows. Give me lots of names. And he's like, I'll give you lots of cities. No, actually, I mean, OK, but I'd really rather have lots of names, want to do the hunt thing. And so I would look at that history of how she's described. And then I narrowed it down to, OK, what was what continued from that story in Ephesus at the time of the earliest Christians? And what what emerged was she is still very much a virgin, but in Ephesus, she the focus is really on childbirth because the thought is that she had mercy on her mother, wanted nothing to do it, with it, but again, has mercy on women who get themselves in such a situation. Yeah. So how would women interact with Artemis then? What would be... Um... The, yeah. the value of her to women who were pregnant? Great question. And I suspect this is at the part, the heart of why Paul would make a promise that's limited, I think, to Ephesian women at the time of the earliest Christians. It's their number one fear, and it's going to be the number one test for a new believing Gentile if she's pregnant. Okay, do I really believe Jesus is Lord? Or do I? am I going to sneak out and hedge my bets with Artemis? And I think Paul is... Uh, he's addressing false teaching that's coming out of this uh, woman-centered cult, but he's also uh, adding a consolation that they're not going to die. I don't think it's for all women for all time. Mm. And, and here's where I think I see hints of it in the book of Acts. So when you look at the magic workers section of Acts 19, anything Paul touches, they a handkerchief, an apron, they can take to a sick person and that person is healed. And that is what makes the magicians go, whoa, <laughs> and burn their magic books. And you don't really see anything parallel to that in Acts that answers Artemis, the goddess of midwifery. Mm. But I do think that you see the answer to that in First Timothy, where Paul is saying, I left you there to teach certain people certain things. And uh, here's here's the good news for women. Yes, I think he's correct, uh, correcting an origin story with an or an origin story. I don't think... The fact that Adam is first means that then all men are preeminent. I don't think that's what Paul is arguing. I think he's saying in a city where Artemis is the firstborn, let me remind you that actually Adam was first. And in the city where Artemis is causing deception, let me just remind you that Eve was deceived 
But the good news is we're going to shut down some teaching, let them learn, <laughs> but she'll be saved through childbearing. He might have even borrowed an Artemis saying, I suspect he did, uh, and then put a Christian spin on it, basically, if they continue in the faith. Mm -hmm. He's not saying every woman will be saved in childbearing. He's not even saying every woman in Timothy's church will. I think it's probably a promise to women who are otherwise tempted to go seek out the goddess that can save them from childbearing. And I think Paul's saying, I hear your concern. I care about your concern. Jesus is better. This is a faithful saying. So that must have been a huge concern because if you've if you've converted yeah. into Christianity. It would have been the number one concern. Yeah. You've converted into yeah. Christianity and you've yeah. you're you become pregnant. I guess that doubt would be in your mind. What if Artemis is no longer I'm no longer looking to Artemis for protection? In fact, she may be angry yes. <laughs> that I've converted this other god. Correct. There meet there would need to be some reassurance there. And not only would she be angry at me, but the way the pantheon works, if I hack off the goddess, I have now endangered my entire city. So the peer pressure on that is like nothing any believer in this century knows. Yep. It's very collective mentality when it comes to their faith. Yeah. And backing up a little bit there from 15, if we go back a little bit, Paul's injunction then for um, that he's not allowing a woman to assume authority or to teach that would be more you would think in line with this kind of false teaching that's coming out of the artemis cult and that being presented to churches it is for a couple reasons number one we see women called to be prophets throughout history and not just church history right on the day of pentecost it's not a sign of male failure when the women prophesy it's a sign that the holy spirit has come. You're a Pentecostal, you know. I mean, you know the the but that's where the church starts is in Acts 2. Yeah. This is a sign something beautiful has happened, not some a sign that something is deeply wrong. And it's very difficult to reconcile that with a teaching that would say it's rooted in creation that women are also always supposed to be silent because it just doesn't fit with the puzzle of how the Holy Spirit has worked through time, not just in the past but in the eschaton and the days to come, in the future and we are not just priests of our God, men and women, in, in this time in the church, but we're royal priesthood. We're children of the king. Um, so the idea that God would want to silence women in at all times and that that is rooted back in the garden just doesn't fit with salvation history, with prophetic history. Uh, I believed it for a really long time and was willing to, um, but it, it just doesn't match what the Holy Spirit has done, it leaves a lot more questions of interpretation yeah. than this does. Yeah. So we've got Paul saying this false teaching that's coming into the church, primarily through women that are presenting it, that needs to be shut down. Shut it down. Yep. Yep. But. But let them learn. Yep. Let them learn. So they need to learn about Jesus and about the faith. Then he's correcting an origin story Correct. by saying it's not, I know Artemis is first here, but actually we're looking at Adam is first, yep. Eve comes second. And then finally, he's saying that if you are tempted to return to this false teaching or this kind of other other way of, of, um, of uh, understanding men and women that, that Artemis cult is presenting, remain faithful to Jesus because he's the one who will protect you through your primary concern, which is the danger of giving birth. Exactly. And I think he's borrowed a local saying, she will be saved through childbearing. Uh, and that's why he ends it with, this is a faithful saying. Mm -hmm. He's put a Christian spin on it. 
especially, I mean, he has a habit of doing that, but also the, just the way the grammar works uh, is actually literally more literally, she will be saved through childbearing if they basically continue in the faith. It doesn't make sense grammatically. And Paul is a good grammarian, Mm -hmm. unless he's got his air quotes around. She'll be saved. Yeah, I'll give you a she'll be saved through childbearing if, uh, and, you know, raise you one. (laughs) This is a faithful saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. And I think that's, um, it's really helpful the way that you present this, because it's another reminder that we always want to universalize what Paul is saying. We do. And it's true that there is much for us to apply from this passage. It's just not what we have tended to apply. It says that Paul walks into a culture, understands it, knows their fears, and presents Jesus as the answer. Honestly, truly, Jesus does have more power. He does have more mercy. He is omniscient and omnipresent. All the things that Artemis isn't. He is better. He's better for women. Paul is better for women. And I think we've totally misunderstood him. But I think if we looked over at Romans 16 to see Paul's practice and, and the men and women that he is greeting and praising and thanking, he's Rufus's mom is like a mom and Phoebe delivered his letter. I mean, he is interacting with women. Even if you look at the beginning of Philippians, where he thanks them for their partnership in the gospel from the first day. Well, who was there on the first day? It's a bunch of women having a prayer meeting outside the city. So yep. Paul has consistently partnered with women in the gospel. And so it then it all starts making a lot more sense yep. than just shut down women for all time. Yeah, absolutely. So if we kind of pull this into now and in our current, not just our practice, but the way that this passage has often been used um, to tell women that they have a particular role in a particular place and it's quite limited what would you say to women who have been who've labored under that or particularly troubled when they come to passages like this um, i think to their credit a lot of men have suffered over this because yeah. they see the giftedness of women they want to partner with and scratch their heads and i've had more mail from men honestly relieved that they can you know, tired pastors going, okay, I, I got a whole cadre of women in my church. Wow. I would love to turn loose to let them do some hospital visits. So there's that. Yeah. Um, but certainly for women that if God is giving you teaching gifts and God calls you to be a mama, that is a high and holy calling. Just understand it's not the only calling for every woman. And it's also not a calling that if you live out the average life expectancy of women is going to be there for you in another 20 years in terms of your everyday life of running errands of all the things that are required and being a full on mama. And so I would say that if God has given you spiritual gifts to remember that the gifts are giving for the good of the body of Christ. And if your nuclear family is part of the body of Christ, great, but you need to see beyond that for how God wants you to use, whether your gifts are, it doesn't have to necessarily be teaching, right? It can be giving, it can be administration. But the the point is, if Jesus tells his mother, who are my mother (laughs) and my brothers and sisters, that even our Lord Jesus, he was not dissing his mother. He had a higher view of the family than biology. Yeah, excellent. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I feel like, We've had half an hour and it's barely enough to scratch <laughs> the surface of the book. We're pretty fast for me. So with, with that said, I would really encourage people to pick up a copy of Nobody's Mother and walk 
steadily through each step as Sandra kind of explains about who Artemis was, the effect that she had on Ephesus, and how that can really help us to understand what Paul is saying in First Timothy. It's really clearly written, and I really appreciated reading it and learned a lot Thank from it myself. So. Um, so, yeah, appreciate you being on, on the podcast with us today, and hopefully we'll get to speak to you again in the future. Thanks for having me. It was totally my pleasure, brother. Thank you so much, Sandra and Kenny, for showing how vital it is to have a broader understanding of the cultural context for this specific passage in 1 Timothy. We'll be sure to check out Sandra's book. In our next episode, Kenny will be joined by Nigel Langford, who works at the Bible Society as the Director of Domestic Mission for the UK and also serves as Chair of the WTC Board of Trustees. They will be chatting about Nigel's experience of adopting a child and how it has shaped his theology and deepened his understanding of the character of God. Theodisc is part of WTC, a theological college that seeks to partner with the church through equipping and sending the whole people of God. Our innovative hub model allows you to study on any of our part-time programmes without leaving your work or ministry. Come and find out more at wtctheology.org.uk. Thank you for listening to episode 27 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 28 with Nigel Langford as we listen to his adoption story. Bye for now.